You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Payne.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks. All right, let's continue with this, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. It says, some of Yerk's questions were straightforward language and math problems, but others were more like tests of familiarity with the dominant culture. One question asked, quote, Christy Matheson is famous as a, one, writer, two, artist, three, baseball player, four, comedian. I don't know, folks. What would you say? Seriously, this was a test given to 1.75 million U.S. Army enlistees in 1917, and that was one of the questions. And if you got a question like that wrong, you are (laughs) feeble-minded. Outrageous. It says the journalist Walter Lippmann, and think about that for a minute, the U.S. Army allowed this test to be given. They obviously adopted it from this guy, Robert M. Yerkes. Okay, so that goes to show you what the precious military that we want to believe was so pure before, I don't know, Joe Biden made it woke, uh, the type of things that they were adopting. And we showed you through today. They're in bed with the transhumanists, the technocrats, and everything else, folks. So, Again, I don't know if I'd count on those people to be the ones to protect you. It goes on to say the journalist Walter Lippmann, AB 1910, Lit D44, said the results were not merely inaccurate, but, quote, nonsense, end quote, with, quote, no more scientific foundation than a 100 other fads, vitamins, uh, or correspondence courses uh, in willpower, end quote. The 47% feeble-minded claim was an absurd result unless, as Harvard's late professor of geology, Stephen J. Gould, put it, the United States was, quote, a nation of morons, end quote. But the Yerkes findings were widely accepted and helped fuel the drives to sterilize, quote, unfit, quote, Americans and keep out, quote, unworthy, end quote, immigrants, right? So see, Americans were getting put on the chopping block. And when I say the chopping block, folks, that is the less painful method to the chemical castration. All right, gentlemen, you're going to the chopping block. Goes on to say, another eugenicist in a key position was William McDougall, who helped the psychology professorship William James had formerly held. His 1920 book, The Group Mind, explained that the, quote, Negro, end quote, race had, quote, never produced any individuals of really high mental and moral endowments, end quote, and was apparently, quote, incapable, end quote, of doing so. His next book, Is America Safe for Democracy, written in 1921, argued that civilizations declined because of the, quote, inadequacy of the qualities of the people who are the bearers of it, end quote, and advocated eugenic sterilization. Again, these are leading Harvard scholars, some of which were presidents of Harvard, heads of departments. All right. Ask that of your Harvard buddies. 
Ask this of your elitist friends. Harvard's embrace of eugenics extended to the athletic department. Dudley Allen Sargent, who arrived in 1879 to direct Hemingway Gymnasium, infused physical education at the college with eugenic principles, including his conviction that certain kinds of exercise were particularly important for female students because they built strong pelvic muscles, which over time could advantage the gene pool. In quote, giving birth to a child, no amount of mental and moral education will ever take the place of a large, well-developed pelvis with plenty of muscular and organic power behind it, end quote, Sargent stated. Oh, so when my wife was doing those exercises, I guess she was taking part in eugenics. I should have warned her, folks. It says the presence of large female pelvises, he insisted, would determine whether, quote, large brainy children shall be born at all, end quote. Well, good thing my wife did those, and it appears it worked. Because I'll tell you this, folks. Last night, oh, we go to bed earlier now. I think it was 8 or 9 o'clock we went to bed, so we woke up at 11 because uh, Big Will, he wanted to be fed. I'm telling you, this kid doesn't stop. It's like he he drives up to the milk machine and uh, he keeps going. Anyway, so he was like a little bit whiny and we decided what the heck. Sometimes we set up his little pillow in between us on the big California King bed and we let him sleep between us. And it's kind of cool. It's still the first week. You know, he was born, uh, what, eight days ago? So he was hanging out there and I'm not kidding you folks one weekend this guy rolled himself over and he kind of crawled on his elbows and he was leaning his head against my shoulder i couldn't believe it so anyway he's probably got a big brain and that's because my wife did her pelvic floor exercises uh leading up to his birth so thank god for eugenics in that department ladies and gentlemen it goes on to say sergeant who presided over hemingway for 40 years used his position as a bully pulpit in 1914 he addressed the nation's largest eugenic gathering the race betterment conference in michigan at which one of the main speakers called for eugenic sterilization of the quote worthless one-tenth end quote of the nation yeah, this guy called for the sterilization of the worthless one-tenth. All right, so stand in a line of people at the grocery store, 10 people there. One of you is going to be chemically castrated. That's what this guy promoted. So it says, Sergeant told the conference that based on his, quote, long experience and careful observation, end quote, of Harvard and Radcliffe students, quote, physical education is one of the most important factors in the betterment of the race, end quote. Apparently, this guy did not have any black athletes playing sports at Harvard there at the time because he would have wanted to exterminate and or sterilize all white people if he watched the black athletes uh, play any sport, folks. And if he attended a, a college dance, you know, a college prom, oh, the white people would have been lined up behind the dumpster and shot uh, if it was going to be a dance-off competition. All right, folks, it goes on to say if Harvard's embrace of eugenics had somehow remained within university confines as merely an intellectual school of thought, the impact might have been contained. But members of the community took to their ideas about genetic superiority and biological engineering to Congress, to the courts, and to the public at large with considerable effect. 
Folks, I think we need to repeat this because earlier I told you, if you are someone who goes to college to learn how to teach fifth graders and all you're taught is how to train them and how to prep them for common core tests or state tests or federal tests, that is all you know. All right. If you are not allowed to go into the classroom and teach you anything other than that, that's all you know. That's what you do. Same goes for doctors. Same goes for lawyers. Same goes for computer programmers. You're doing what you're taught. So you have a whole generation of kids. Actually, I would say more than that because this stuff spanned from the late 1800s to really going into the early 1930s. You had, what, 30, 40 years of students who learned this and then took this out into the real world with them. Again, it says, if Harvard's embrace of eugenics had somehow remained within university confines as merely an intellectual school of thought, the impact might have been contained. But members of the community took their ideas about genetic superiority and biological engineering to Congress, to the courts, and to the public at large with considerable effect. Remember, these Harvard grads end up being elevated into positions of power, positions of influence, positions that allow them to build a lot of wealth, folks. That's why they go to Harvard. It was on to say, in 1894, a group of alumni met in Boston to found an organization that took a eugenic approach to what they considered the greatest threat to the nation, immigration. Prescott, Farnsworth Hall, Charles Warren, and Robert DeCourcy Ward were young scions of old New England families, all from the class of 1889. They called their organization the Immigration Restriction League, but genetic thinking was so central to their mission that Hall proposed calling it the Eugenic Immigration League. Joseph Lee, and he's got this long string of things after his name, so I'm not going to read them, scion of a wealthy Boston banking family and twice elected a Harvard overseer, was a major funder. And Okay, I'll go back to that. And William DeWitt Hyde, uh, AB se- uh, 1879, S- STD, 86. Oh, he had STDs? No. Another future overseer and the president of Boyden College served as a vice president. The membership roles quickly filled with hundreds of people united in xenophobia, many of them Boston Brahmins and Harvard graduates. Let's go back to that part we missed there, folks. That was... The banking guy, who was that? Joseph Lee, scion of a wealthy Boston banking family and twice elected a Harvard overseer, was a major funder. All right, so you're going to see throughout a lot of the research we're doing that we're always finding these bankers, okay, behind the scenes. Obviously, they need to be because the big money comes from the bankers. Movements like technocracy and eugenics and transhumanism don't happen without the bankers. All right, everything that Wide Awake Jim is covering uh, in episodes 80, 88, and the future episodes is going to lead up to show you the bankers that are behind the scenes. They're the ones pushing central bank digital currency, UBI, carbon credits, and everything else. Again, we're supposed to believe they're just vulture capitalists, out-of-control capitalists. They are nothing more than people that are interested in ultimate power and control. So they don't care if the money that they control is monopoly money, if it is useless fiat currency, if it is seashells, if it is pine cones, if it is acorns, if it is CBDC, if it is energy certificates, 
certificates, if it is carbon credits, if it is the U.S. dollar, if it is the Polish Zwarte, they don't care uh, as long as they have control and they have power. It goes on to say their goal was to keep out groups they regarded as biologically undesirable. Immigration was a race question, pure and simple. Ward said, quote, it is fundamentally a question as to what races shall dominate in the country, end quote. League members made no secret of whom they meant, Jews, Italians, Asians, and anyone else who did not share their northern European lineage. Drawing on Harvard influence to pursue its goals, recruiting alumni to establish branches in other parts of the country, and boasting President Lowell himself as its vice president, the Immigration Restriction League was remarkably effective in its work. Its first major proposal was a literacy test, not only to reduce the total number of immigrants, but also to lower the percentage from Southern and Eastern Europe where literacy rates were lower. In 1896, the League persuaded Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts to introduce a literacy bill. Getting it passed and signed into law took time, but beginning in 1917, immigrants were legally required to prove their literacy to be admitted to the country. Now, again, this is why I was saying some of this stuff you may agree with, some of this stuff you may not agree with. That's why I said I'm not really going to take a personal stand on this. Uh, in everything bad, you can also find something good. I am a strong believer in having secure borders. Uh, that's what makes you a sovereign country. So I am not necessarily opposed to a literacy test for people coming into the country. But then again, I'm looking at it based on today in 2022. I don't know what the situation was in 1917. I also didn't look up the literacy rate of U.S. citizens at the time. So I'd have to look at that. I'm just presenting the facts, folks. But this is what happened happens in this eugenics movement they use these issues like immigration okay stuff that they could fix on its own but they use those to tie them into the ability for them to deem who's fit and unfit who's employable and unemployable and then be able to force chemical castration to be able to introduce forced breeding for the fit and to be able to introduce elements of um of actual genocide of actually killing people so they sort of mix all these things in that then allows them to get certain people on board so you go yeah i'm on board with making sure people that can't read come into the united states okay great well guess what you also have to be on board with sterilizing uh americans that we think are stupid see this is how they get everybody on board they get buy-in from various groups of people it's no different than what these guys do today folks they build buy-in buy-in and adoption of these policies all right folks we'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's continue here because there's quite a bit more in this. I think you're learning a lot, ladies and gentlemen. Harvard 
was, uh, I wouldn't say ground zero because it was going on in a lot of places, but it was definitely one element of ground zero in the current transhumanist movement. You're going to see that when we wrap up this article. It goes on to say the league scored a far bigger victory with the passage of Immigration Act of 1924. After hearing extensive expert testimony about the biological threat posed by immigrants, Congress imposed harsh national quotas designed to keep Jews, Italians, and Asians out. As the percentage of immigrants from Northern Europe increased significantly, Jewish immigration fell from 190,000 in 1920 to 7,000 in 1926. Italian immigration fell nearly as sharply, and immigration from Asia was almost completely cut off until 1952. While one group of alumni focused on inserting eugenics into immigration, another prominent alumnus was taking the lead of the broader movement, Charles Benedict Davenport. A.B. 1889, Ph.D. 92, taught zoology at Harvard before founding the Eugenics Record Office in Cold Spring Harbor, New York in 1910, funded in large part by Mrs. E.H. Harriman, widow of the railroad magnate, the E.R.O., became a powerful force in promoting eugenics. It was the main gathering place for academics studying eugenics and the driving force in promoting eugenic sterilization laws nationwide. Oh, fuck. See, all the elites were on board with this. And you don't think for two seconds that this is about the fact that they love you or they want to save this country for you or they want to keep uh, you alive and protect you. No, folks, you would be sent for sterilization. All of us would be deemed to be feeble-minded folks, unfit to live, unfit to produce. It says, Davenport wrote prolifically, Heredity in Relation to Eugenics, published in 1911, quickly became the standard text for the eugenics courses cropping up at colleges and universities nationwide. See that? So Heredity in Relation to Eugenics, published in 1911, quickly became the standard text for the eugenics courses cropping up at colleges and universities nationwide and was cited by more than one-third of high school biology textbooks of the era. You see this? This mentality was embedded into society. This is social engineering at the highest order. Goes on to say, Davenport explained that qualities like criminality and laziness were genetically determined. Quote, when both parents are shiftless in some degree, end quote, he wrote, only about 15% of their children would be, quote, industrious, end quote. Well, what about all the sons and the daughters of the elite class who write this, who turn out to be no good drug addict bums? Huh? What's your excuse there, folks? What's your excuse there, you elitist pigs? I'm serious, folks. This is how they talk about us. Because trust me, trust me, we fit into these categories that they are talking about. It goes on to say, but perhaps no Harvard eugenicist had more impact on the public consciousness than Lothrop Stoddard, AB 1905, PhD 14. His bluntly titled 1920 bestseller, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, had 14 printings in its first three years, drew lavish praise from President Warren G. Harding, 
and made a mildly disguised appearance in The Great Gatsby when Daisy Buchanan's husband Tom exclaimed that, quote, civilization's going to pieces, end quote, something he learned by reading, quote, The Rise of the Colored Empires, end quote, by this man Goddard. When eugenics reached a high water mark in 1927, and folks, there you go, though, teaching moment, there was placing that book into uh, the great Gatsby. This is how they spread propaganda back then as well. No different than today. So when we say, let's go back to whatever America, this stuff was going on in any given time. It was always going on. I'm not sitting here trashing America. I'm just trying to make people realize that the dream that you have is just a dream. The solution is for us to get together and just check out, get out of here, go form another society and just stay clear of this stuff because it's already embedded in the culture. You can't undo it. We can't undo it, but we can wake up enough people in and around us to then go form a breakaway community. I'm going to start calling it a breakaway community instead of a breakaway civilization because we're not going to start another civilization. We have to start with a community. You know, 100 families, we get together, we buy um, a 1,000 acres somewhere, we have 10 acres apiece, um, You know, maybe we have five acres apiece that we designate 500 acres to do a sustainable farm. And then basically have our tech center where we go to work. If we have to tap in, work remotely. I don't know. We can figure it out, folks. Breakaway community. All right. It goes on to say, when eugenics reached a high water mark in 1927, a pillar of the Harvard community once again played a critical role. In that year, the Supreme Court decided Buck v. Bell, a constitutional challenge to Virginia's eugenic sterilization law. The case was brought on behalf of Carrie Buck, a young woman who had been designated, quote, feeble-minded, end quote, by the state and selected for eugenic sterilization. That's right here in the United States, folks. But was, in fact, not feeble-minded at all. Growing up in poverty in Charlottesville, she had been taken in by a foster family and then raped by one of its relatives. See, the same sick stuff was going on back then. She was declared feeble-minded because she was pregnant out of wedlock, and she was chosen for sterilization because she was deemed to be feeble-minded. See that? No fault of her own. No fault of her own, and then they're going to chemically castrate her. By an 8-to-1 vote, the justices upheld the Virginia law and Buck's sterilization and cleared the way for sterilizations to continue in about half the country where there were similar laws. Think about it, folks. Go back to 1927. 8-to-1, the Supreme Court justices upheld Virginia's forced sterilization law and enforced This woman bucked to be sterilized. This woman who was taken in by foster parents, raped and got pregnant. Think about that. And we talk about the Supreme Court being corrupt now. We don't even know our own history. We don't even know our own history. Goes on to say the majority opinion was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., Again, a long string after his name. A former Harvard Law School professor and overseer. Holmes, who shared his father's deep faith in bloodlines, did not merely give Virginia a green light. 
He urged the nation to get serious about eugenics and prevent large numbers of, quote, unfit and, quote, Americans from reproducing. It was necessary to sterilize people who, quote, sapped the strength of the state, end quote, Holmes insisted, to, quote, prevent our being swamped with incompetence, end quote. His opinion included one of the most brutal uh, aphorisms in American law, saying a buck, her mother, and her perfectly normal infant daughter, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. You hear this? Do you hear this? Seriously. Are you absorbing this? This is making me choke up folks i'm not gonna play uh, glenn beck over here and start crying on camera i have my sunglasses on anyway my gold standard sunglasses so you wouldn't see me but this is sick and demented so this is oliver wendell holmes jr right and he was the uh, son of oliver wendell holmes senior who was the eugenicist and look what his son has become so they talk about us you know, breeding and then having kids that are horrible and terrible because, you know, we're unemployable. So our kids will be unemployable. Look at the monster that his father was and then look at the monster he become. That he became. I'm sorry, I'm feeble-minded. No, folks, I'm a little torn up on this. I mean, it's sick. It's disgusting. You talk about debating abortion in the first second third trimester look at what was going on here a hundred years ago in the united states and we want to sit here and pretend we have the moral high ground forces this woman who was raped to be sterilized and he looks at her mother her and her child Three generations of imbeciles are enough because I'm an elitist and a Harvard Law School professor. Unbelievable. In the same week, the Supreme Court decided Buck v. Bell. Harvard made eugenics news of its own. It turned down a $60,000 bequest from Dr. J. Ewing Mears, a Philadelphia surgeon, to fund instruction in eugenics, quote, in all branches, notably that branch relating to the treatment of the defective and criminal classes by surgical procedures, end quote. Harvard's decision reported on the front page of the New York Times appeared to be a counterweight to the Supreme Court's ruling, but the university's decision had been motivated more by reluctance to be coerced into a particular position on sterilization than by any institutional opposition to eugenics, which it continued to embrace, right? Eugenics followed much the same arc at Harvard as it did in the nation at large. Interest began to wane in the 1930s as the field became more closely associated with the Nazi government that had taken power in Germany. By the end of the decade, Davenport had retired and the ERO had shut down. The Carnegie Institution, of which it was part, no longer wanted to support eugenics research and advocacy. As the nation went to war against a regime that embraced racism, eugenics increasingly came to be regarded as un-American. And that is all a total lie. We took the Nazis in after World War II. You know this. We covered Operation Paperclip. We continued with Nazi MK Ultra experiments right down the street from me at Fort Detrick under the guidance of CIA Director Alan Dulles. 
The airport I went to to pick up my mother-in-law yesterday is Dulles Airport, named after him. He oversaw the MK Ultra program. Sidney Gottlieb, the chief chemist of the CIA, was trained by Nazis and Japanese torturers. So to say that this practice ended and died with Adolf Hitler is a complete and total lie. It is a farce. It is fake. This is fake news. It never ended. It never faded. It rebranded. When I get back, I'm going to continue this. We're going to finish up this article. But then we're going to go down a long path of showing you how this just evolved. It just rebranded. It's gotten worse, ladies and gentlemen. It's gotten worse because these madmen, these Frankenstein doctors, have access to even more technology now. They can actually pull this off, just like with technocracy. They could not do those energy certificates back in 1933, but they can pull it off today in the form of central bank digital currency. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. 